for 20 years, we've been talking about resilience. When something difficult happens, bounce back. And for the last 10 or 15 years, we've been talking about grit. When, when change comes your way, that's a struggle, you know, be determined, be persistent, soldier on. But the lemons to lemonade advice is not just about bouncing back. It's not just about soldiering on. It's somehow about turning difficulty into delight. And that's much more transformative. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, where every episode we feature a best-selling author or world-renowned thought leader, all in the name of helping you elevate your leadership impact. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz, and I want to thank our season sponsor, PowerEd. PowerEd is an award-winning division of Athabasca University who partners with organizations looking for impactful online learning solutions. Their on-demand online offerings include leadership, project management, artificial intelligence ethics, digital transformation, embracing allyship and inclusion, and digital wellness. Check out the team from Athabasca University at athabascau.ca. My guest today is Tom Morris. Tom is one of the world's top public philosophers and pioneering business thinkers. He's the author of over 30 groundbreaking books and is a legendary speaker whose electrifying talks re-engage people around their deepest values and reignite their passion for work and life. Think of the wisdom of Yoda, Gandalf, and Dumbledore rolled together and linked to the spirit and energy of the world's most winning athletic coaches and then stir in a little unexpected humor of Seinfeld or Jimmy Fallon and you'll start to get the idea of what Tom's personality is like. Tom, welcome to Unleashed. Good to be here, Jeff. Good to be with you, man. So it, uh, it's such a pleasure uh, to be speaking with you today. And uh, you know, after getting through one of your many books, Plato's Lemonade, Lemonade Stand, uh, I've got just a litany of questions for you. And of course, we have a friend in common, which is the reason that you're here, is, is, uh, is John Spence, uh, author of Awesomely Simple and, and one of the top 100 uh, business thinkers. So uh, glad to uh, have met you, Tom, and, and really looking forward to this conversation today. Well, I am too, Jeff. Uh, John only introduces me to the greatest people around the world, so I'm sure we're going to have fun together. Well, I'm going to do my best. I think you can you can reserve judgment until after the conversation is over, but I'll <laughs> uh, I'll certainly do my best to uh, to earn that uh, to earn that distinction. Now, I was I've done a a number of or no, I guess a bunch of research uh, leading up to this, in addition to the book. And one of the things that really jumped out for me is you have been called, amongst many other things, perhaps the world's happiest philosopher. And I wanted to ask, how did you earn that title? Well, you know, it's it's funny. Uh, oh, we got to put it in perspective, right? The, the the philosophers haven't traditionally been a bunch of hilarious people having great fun all the time. Some of them are pre pretty gloomy souls, but I stand out from the pack. I'm a real optimist, and I just enjoy my I enjoy everything I do. You know, my my father gave me great advice when I was growing up. He said, "Do something as long as you really love it." and you think you have something distinctively to contribute. If either of those things changes, you should make a change. And so I, I do what I do just because I truly, truly love it. When you break down the concept of happiness into its various components, I guess I do pretty well on all, all of them. So I, whenever I speak around the world, I've done over 1,200, 1,400 talks at this point to business groups uh, around the globe, uh, we always have fun. So people come away saying, boy, this is a happy guy. <laughs> Well, how did you, going back to your mother's advice, how did you and maybe when did you sort of first realize you were catching the bug of wanting to be a philosopher? 
Well, I was the first person in my family ever to go to college. Uh, my mom told me there was no money for college when I was in high school, so I should just get a job. But I got a, a letter in the mail. My high school had nominated me for a Moorhead scholarship, now called a Moorhead Cane at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. A full ride, all expenses paid, spending money, everything. And being a Moorhead scholar got me a free ride to Yale for two PhDs and six years there. Uh, it was just an amazing experience. I thought I was going to go into business and law school, but I got captivated by some humanities professors, a religion professor, a philosophy professor. I took six courses with each of them as an undergraduate. I decided I wanted to dig deeper into these ultimate issues about life that nobody seemed to be talking about in the broader world. And so uh, Notre Dame wanted to become the best place in the, in the world for my specialty at the time I graduated with my PhD. So I went there, they hired me and uh, I had a 15 year run of so much fun, never thinking that I would be a public philosopher that, you know, I, I, I quit my job at Notre Dame as a full professor. I taught two days a week. I had 12 teaching assistants to do all the grading of papers and exams. I didn't have to do any of that. I loved Notre Dame. It was the most wonderful place. But business groups started asking me, hey, did the great philosophers say anything about success deeper than what we normally hear? One, one car dealer said, you know, we have this annual convention. We have motivational speakers every year. They say, set goals, aim high, believe in yourself, you can do it. There's got to be more than that, right? There's got to be something deeper. Does, does philosophy say anything relevant to that? I said, I don't know. Not the kind of stuff I studied in graduate school. Let me look into it. You know, Jeff, that's the secret of my whole career in life is when people come to me with a problem. If it, I never say, I'm not the guy for that. You know, you're calling the wrong person. I say, okay, let me look into that. Maybe I can help out. Maybe I can uh, do something good. And uh, that's just launched me into all kinds of topics and to all kinds of settings and situations that I think no philosopher has ever experienced before in human history. So it's a great adventure I'm on. And again, my parents taught me life is supposed to be a series of, of adventures. The one you're on now is preparing you for the next one, and often in ways you can't even imagine. Yeah, that's well said. And you have, uh, you've written a number of books. In fact, I think you're up to 30 books and you're working on more. Uh, in, now, the, one of the things about your, about your books is a lot of them have very clever and creative titles, uh, including the one that we're going to focus on today quite, uh, quite heavily, I think, which is Plato's Lemonade Stand. How in the world do you come up with the names of these books? You know, I got to be honest about this, like everything else. I, I did um, a book in 1997. And I had the full manuscript and I sent it around to presidents of companies I'd been working with. And one president of a company, he said, ah, this is one of my favorite books ever. Uh, but the title is so boring. The, the title was Reinventing Corporate Spirit. And I said, well, but you, you like the book, right? He said, yeah, boring title though. And this is when reinventing was a big thing in the 90s, you know? And so I said, well, what would you name the book? And he said, I don't know, maybe something like if Aristotle ran General Motors, I said, bingo, that's the title. And so more CEOs have told me they own that book and they have it in their office. And they usually say, I saw it in a bookstore. And I said, because of the title, I said, I got to look into this book. So after that, you know, if Harry Potter ran General Electric, you know, Plato's Lemonade Stand. Uh, we've had some great titles, but it was spurred by somebody else saying you got a boring title. Yeah, well, and I loved this book, uh, Plato's Lemonade Stand, and I hope everybody after they listen to this conversation rushes out and buys a copy for themselves. And, and the reasons I loved it 
is it was inspiring and it was really practical. And I think those are two things that I often gravitate towards in book. So I felt, I, you know, I felt inspired by it. I felt excited. I felt motivated. But I also feel like you equipped me with some tools that I could start mm-hmm. using, uh, which is awesome. And now one, one of the things in the book that you do so well is you include quotes of other people, famous people and philosophers and a lot of stoicism, yeah. of course. Now, yeah. one of the quotes that's, yeah, yeah. and one of the quotes, I think it's literally on, uh, like on the, on the very, on the third page of the book is from Mary Shelley. And it says, nothing, oh, yeah. nothing is more painful to the human mind as great as sudden change. And my question is, oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, why are we so bad as human beings at dealing with change? You know, I think it's in our deep evolutionary survival past. You know, when, when, when you're struggling with daily survival, uh, there, there are predatory animals around you. There are other predatory human beings. There are natural disasters. You're, you're on the edge of whether you have enough food or not. Then what you, what you want is a stable situation where you're not being surprised all the time so that you can devote your energy and attention to those rare surprises that do arise. Uh, you're not just a, a, a split in your focus all the time all over the place because things are always changing. Of course, Heraclitus said in 500 BCE, he said, uh, everything is always changing. That So that was, you know, that was thousands of years ago. What would he say now? I told you so, probably. But I think that we resist change largely because, and look, when we're young, uh, the first occasions we have to think about change. When do we hear the word change used as we're growing up? You better change that attitude, young man. Or, or, you, or young lady, you're not leaving the house until you change that outfit. You know, you learn to change a light bulb, change a tire. You learn to change a baby's diaper. None of these are pleasant experiences, right? And so we grow up with a, these negative associations and they're buried deep in the, in the oldest parts of our brains that we want stability, we want predictability. And when change comes, unpredictability and uncertainty comes with it. So people are, are, are naturally shaken by it. And there's Mary Shelley in the, in the early 1800s, surrounded by a famous philosopher father and a famous philosopher mother. Her boyfriend was one of the most popular poets of the day. And his best friend, Lord Byron, was the rock star poet of the day. She was surrounded by all these famous and powerful and and wealthy people. And she could see even with these accomplished individuals, they were reticent about change too. So it's it's an insight we've long had. So I, I just realized I needed to deal with this topic at some point in my career. In fact, it was sparked off because a small bank that happened to be one of the biggest issuers of credit cards in the U.S. They were bought by a larger bank, actually Bank of America. And they said, look, we don't even know if we're going to have a job after this merger goes through because I don't know what the, I may be getting the numbers backwards, but they said, you know, we got 9,000 credit card people and they have already 6,000 credit card people. They're going to end up with 15,000 credit card people. So morale is terrible. Productivity is way down. Everybody's in high anxiety about these changes coming up. Could you put together something about how to deal with difficult change? And rather than saying, well, again, you call the wrong guy. I've never really thought about it. I said, yeah, let me look into it. I'm sure the philosophers have something to say. I grew up hearing people say, when life hands you lemons, make lemonade. I must have heard that dozens of times as a kid. It's a great image, but nobody ever said how you're supposed to do this thing. And I started thinking about it. And I said, wait a minute. For 20 years, we've been talking about resilience when something difficult happens, bounce back. And for the last 10 or 15 years, we've been talking about grit. 
when when change comes your way that's a struggle you know be determined be persistent soldier on but the lemons to lemonade advice is not just about bouncing back it's not just about soldiering on it's somehow about turning difficulty into delight and that's much more transformative i got to figure out what the philosophers had to say about how we act transformatively with change so pretty soon i got concerned about two kinds of change the change that happens to us often unexpectedly and the change that happens only because of us uh, sometimes also unexpectedly. So that book, Plato's Lemonade Stand, which had six titles before that title, uh, boring titles, I should, I should say. Um, Plato's Lemonade Stand is all about how to deal with those two kinds of change. So part one is about the change that happens to us, and part two is, the change, is about the change that will only happen because of us. And those are two deeply related things. It took me 15 years to figure out, to write the book. Uh, it had six titles. It got rejected, I think, by publishers 44 times under the boring titles. And But I used the advice of the book. And uh, not only was I able to bounce back and soldier on, I was able to be transformative. And so when I'm asked to go speak to a business group, to a company, to an association at a business school, um, and I get to talk about the ideas in this book, people really come alive because we don't want to be here just to cope. We want to be here to conquer and to transform and to turn things into better things. So, so that's what the book is all about, and that's kind of the history behind it. Yeah, and I, well, and I and I really appreciate how you how you're changing the emotion around it because you're. I think you're right. When somebody hears the word grit, they that sounds to me at least like that's grueling. Like that's sort of like slogging through yeah. quicksand. And you're, and you're doing yeah. it because you believe in a better future, but the process of getting to that right. better future is not very fun. And you're sort of suggesting yeah. that we can make that process of grit enjoyable and, and actually yeah. use that to light us up and bring, and bring joy into our lives. And I think that's an important distinction. Now, Tom, one of the things that, that you said is that uh, change is made difficult in addition because we value often the wrong things. And I wondered if you could explain yeah. that a bit more for me. Yeah, it's it's interesting because we clearly properly value stability, security, comfort. Those are all good things. But we've come in our society now pretty much almost globally to to value those things too much. And and, and that's that's eye-opening to a lot of people, just the idea that you can value you can value a good thing too much. Uh, although we've all heard the expression too much of a good thing, but we think about that's, you know, three beers too many on a Saturday night. Well, no, there's there's too much of a good thing in terms of how our emotions and attitudes relate to security and comfort and 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 all the rest. If you only value those things or if you value them too much, then any change that threatens your security, your comfort, your uh, is going to be viewed in a, in a in a negative way. And I, I remember having a guy come to me and say, look, I was high up in a major global corporation. I had a lot of people reporting to me. I had a, I headed up a big division. And the company CEO uh, came to me and said, look, um, we want you to do a new startup that could be the seeds of our future in really important ways. But initially, you'll have a small budget. You'll have just a few people. 
uh, you'll be in this kind of out of the way place. You won't be high up in the corporate skyscraper, you know. And this guy said, man, you know, all the stuff that I'd come to value, you know, my position in that company as a senior executive vice president uh, or running a division, you know, having so many people answer to me, feeling like I was a, you know, king of a kingdom. And then all of a sudden I'm being asked to do this little startup. He said, if, if I had just valued my rank, my status, my pay package, because that was going to change too. He said, but it offered the chance of something really great in the future if I'd be willing to make these changes. Now, people who just value status and and the known, you know, the certain, the comfortable, they would say no to that. Thanks a lot, but I think I'll stay where I am. He said, I'm so glad I was able to put those traditional values that we grasp onto so tightly, put them in their place and say, you know, I've enjoyed myself. It's been great having all this. Uh, available to me, you know, six secretaries, six assistants, and six, all, all these people doing my work. But you know, this is a new adventure, and I value this. If we come to value, to value adventure more, uh, exploration, discovery, then we'll be willing to take chances we otherwise wouldn't want to make. And that's a real key in the world of business right now. We can't stay with what we know, because more and more people know what we know, and the competition gets worse and worse. So we're we're only flourishing if we're continuing to try and discover new things. So I give people kind of a, a philosophical framework for embracing that in a really positive way. Yeah, well, and we don't really have a choice as you allude to, and, and th this kind of harkens back to the universal truths about change that you mentioned in your book is that it is constant, it's necessary, and it and it is scary and 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 then you mentioned a, the word adventure and I actually you'll you'll see it later Tom if you jump on Twitter but I posted a, a tweet today that I always recognize in hindsight how exhilarating adventure is in my life but I'm not a very adventurous person I'll try something once and if I like it then that kind of becomes a routine and I get kind of locked into my comfort zone and I had a an experience on just the other day we had a private chef come in and and we thought we were going to get sushi and what we got was this deep philosophical conversation. And this woman was, the chef was fascinating. And she shared with us that recently her mother had passed away. And just before she died of, of cancer, she gave her a locket. And on this locket, there was an engraving that said, I hope to be forever the me that greets change with open arms and an open heart. That's and great. I oh. thought that that was beautiful. And I think that that's a, that's a way better way to say, you know, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It's and, a wonderful way to say that. And it was so timely. And, and I think here's my hope for our conversation today, Tom, is anybody that's tuning in, is I hope that we can equip them with some inspiration, but also some tactics and some strategies that they can start to make that quote on the back of that locket a reality for their own life. Yeah, that's great. I really do like that. I, I often say that half of wisdom is knowing what to embrace and what to release. Most people get it wrong, embracing things they ought to be releasing and releasing things they ought to be embracing. And that's a simple, that's a simple metaphor for the wisdom we need to bring to life. And if we can embrace adventure more and release the known for the unknown more, we give ourselves the chance for creativity and, and innovation. And I actually did a, a chapter of the book, If Aristotle Ran General Motors, back in 1997, called Business and the Meaning of Life. I've had so many 
uh, chief executive officers say to me, that's the single most vital chapter in any business book I've ever read. And I'll and when people first started saying that to me, I would say, well, why, why is that? They said, because you talk, you really talk about the meaning of life as creativity, as creative love or loving creativity. And and we can't do that if we just stay with what we know. We can't do that if we, we just allow ourselves to get stagnant. That requires going on adventures. So, you know, releasing the known, embracing the unknown, moving forward. And that's the whole recipe behind human history about, uh, you know, the, our advancements in human history. Going that extra step, pioneering, discovering, having some faith along the way. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you've mentioned that. That's to me, that's a, that's a hugely important mindset for our making the difference we're here in this world to make. Yeah. And Tom, you mentioned there's a couple of kinds of change. I mean, there's that change that is happening to us. And and I don't, I don't know if it's happening at a greater velocity than ever. I mean, I think it is. Like we're so exposed with social media now and technological change and you know, artificial intelligence now seems to be the next huge thing that is going to completely upend the way that we live our lives. And then there's the change that we that we proactively make. And and um, when it comes to the change that is happening to us. I, I wouldn't mind some direction from you in terms of what's the best way for us to approach this. Like you do, you do, you do a really good job in play those lemonade stand of breaking down, responding to change favorably. And there's kind of three areas, right? Like the art of self-control, yeah. the art of positive action, and then the art of achievement. I don't know if, yeah. if it's better for us, Tom, to sort of d delve into a f to those and, and talk about a few ways yeah. that we can harness those three, or if there's a better way oh, that yeah. we can equip people with some tools. What's what's your sort of your your instinct? I, I, I like doing that. I, I, I like that approach. Let, let's let's do that. In, in fact, you mentioned the Stoics early. Uh, there, that book, Plato's Lemonade Stand, is is very inspired in a lot of different ways by the great Stoic philosophers of ancient Greece and ancient Rome. And there, there's a there's a resurgence of Stoicism around the world right now, the likes of which we've never seen. I mean, in the 40s and 50s, existentialism was popular, but mostly amongst the beatniks and beat poets and novelists and all that. And then in the 60s and 70s, there was some Hindu and Buddhist popularity. You know, the Beatles go to Maharishi. Everybody starts to wonder about meditation. But the Stoic popularity right now, in fact, in the, the 90s, I was approached by the dummies people who asked me the famous uh, four dummies books. They said, look, we want to, we want you to write philosophy for dummies. <laughs> I said, wait, what? Don't you guys do gardening books and car repair and computer books? They said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we want to launch into lifetime learning in the humanities and the arts. We've gotten Thomas Hoving, the curator of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, to agree to do art for dummies. If you'll agree to do philosophy for dummies, you too will launch our new humanities and arts uh, enterprise. I said, oh, that'd be awesome. They came to me a month ago and they said, we want you to do another book, Stoicism for Dummies. And I said, well, you know what? Because my book, Plato's Lemonade Stand, is so stoic, because of the book, I've got a short novel called The Oasis Within that's heavily influenced by the Stoics. And people said it's made a huge difference to their following the advice in Plato's Lemonade Stand, actually. These philosophical tips and techniques that have been around for a couple thousand years, they can be exactly what we need now. So yeah, we can dive into those three arts of change, if you want, which are inspired by the Stoics and add in blends from other philosophy as well. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit then about the art of self-control and, and how does a person uh, um, start to make some progress in that area? You know, when a, a, a new disruptive change happens, uh, the first response is typically, oh, no. 
you know, something we didn't see coming that doesn't look like it's necessarily going to be a change for the better. We say, oh, no, we panic. This is awful. This is terrible. This is the worst thing ever. In fact, the ancient philosopher said it could be equally bad to be irrationally exuberant about something you didn't see coming, you know, something that looks really good. Oh, this is the best thing that's ever happened. Well, maybe it's not going to be the best thing that ever happened. This is the worst thing that's ever happened. Maybe it's not going to be the worst thing that ever happened. Just take a breath, establish some inner tranquility, and you'll be able to handle whatever it is better. So I discovered there's this ancient art of self-control. So when a big new change comes our way, first thing we have to do is get calm. The, the philosophers say, first of all, th there are three things. We, there are three rules of self-control. They say, don't rush to judgment. Don't be too quick to say, this is great, this is terrible. Value the right things, what we were talking about a few minutes ago. You know, don't just value comfort and security in the known. You know, value adventure, value learning, creativity. Uh, and use your imagination well. Whenever something big and new and disruptive happens, people's imaginations spin out of control, right? People catastrophize. You know, oh, they 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 vividly imagine terrible scenarios spinning out of this uh this new shock they've just gotten. That disempowers people. That makes them panic is never a good recipe for dealing with a new challenging situation. And so if we can refrain from rushing to judgment, don't be too quick to say this is greater, this is terrible. If we can do a values check, make sure we're valuing the right things. And then if, thirdly, if we take charge of our imaginations and try to imagine great new opportunities this scenario could be presenting us with, then we become you know, victors, not victims. We, we, we put ourselves into a completely different position to do that alchemy, to do that transformation that's going to be necessary to go from lemons to lemonade, right? So yeah, a lemon can be bitter to taste, to bite into, but it can turn into something really sweet and great if you add the right other ingredients. And that's our job, right? So, but you're not going to do that well if you're just panicked, if you're depressed, if you're distraught. So that first art, the art of self-control, that's where you have to start with any new disruptive change. Yeah, and it certainly reminds me that we often suffer more in imagination and in reality. So that's a, a great reminder there. Now, I'm curious about in that moment, though, because I can see how that's going to take some practice and some deliberate practice, yes. right? That, that the emotion yeah. that we're, uh, the amygdala is firing to some unfortunate news that we've heard, and it kind of controls us and our bodies flood uh, you know, um, with hormones and, and emotions and adrenaline and all that kind of stuff. What are some very basic tactics that you have seen people use to try to get a little bit more self-control in that instantaneous uh, moment where they get some bad news? Well, you know, you're right. Um, unless a principle becomes a practice, nothing of practical value is going to result, right? There are too many people who go see great speakers or read great books and in the end, it's kind of like entertainment value. You know, they've enjoyed the ideas. They've been inspired. They've been enlightened. They've learned, but they haven't changed. They haven't become better people as a result. You have to put these things into practice. Uh, the philosophers have offered us all these great images from this. For example, wisdom is sometimes imaged in the ancient world as an old wagon wheel, right? You're rolling down the bumpy road of time and change. 
And in this image, you, you imagine human beings as tiny little creatures living somewhere along the wheel. And as a matter of fact, most creatures, most human beings live out at the outer edge of the rim of the wheel. So that as the wheel of fortune turns, and this is what they actually used to call it, as the wheel of fortune turns, the ups and downs of life, you'll be whipped to Tremendous highs and terrible lows, right? From irrational exuberance to unnecessary despair. Wisdom, the philosophers say, is what moves us toward the hub of the wheel. The wheel is still going to turn, but you won't be so radically displaced emotionally and in your attitudes if you're closer to the hub. And so the philosophers offer us all these techniques. A lot of their techniques are about putting things in perspective. Marcus Aurelius, the, the Stoic emperor of Rome, was really good about this. He would, he would talk about, you know, situation looks overwhelming. We'll zoom out. Look at it from 40,000 feet. Look at it for, from, uh, go, go, go to the moon in your perspective and, and see how small the world is, how small your city is. It's almost disappearingly small. Remember, your problem, you're just one person in, the, in this one city, in this one state, this one part of the globe. Look how tiny it is from a cosmic perspective. Or he will think about time rather than space. And he'll say, look at all the eons that have existed before you were born and all the infinite times that will come after you're gone from this earth. Do you think this problem is a big deal on the cosmic scale? Put it into perspective. And I love this image. And this image I got when I was writing the book, The Oasis Within, the first of eight novels that came to me as a movie playing in my head. Over a million words, a story set in Egypt in 1934 and 1935, sort of an epic adventure. Uh, it, it, I was watching a movie for five years, just typing as fast as I could. My grand old man, my Gandalf, my Dumbledore, uh, a, a, an older man named Ali, he's traveling across the desert in the oasis with, in, with his nephew, who's just turned 13. And they're at an oasis as the book opens. And the nephew says basically, man, I wish we could stay here. This place is so beautiful. It's so peaceful. I wish we didn't have to leave. And his uncle says, well, you know, you can take an oasis with you wherever you go in life. And the boy says, what, is that? what does that even mean? How do I do that? And they start having this amazing conversation. This happens on pages two, three, four, the very opening pages of the book. In fact, a CEO in California wrote me an email. It said, page five of the Oasis Within has changed my life forever. And I had to write it back. I'd forgotten what was on page five. I said, what is it? He said, the telescope image. Oh, okay. The old man says to his nephew at one point, have you ever seen a telescope? Now, this is 1934. They live in a tiny village in Western Egypt. So that kind of question makes sense. And the boy says, yeah, a man was traveling with a caravan recently, came through our village, and, and he had a telescope, like the old pirate telescopes. He, he gave it to me and showed me how to look to, through it. I was amazed that faraway things look close up and, and tiny things look big. And the old man says, I'm glad you had that experience because when I was about your age, somebody gave me a telescope. And just like you, I looked through the end. He told me to look through and, you know, little things look big and far things look near. And then I turned it around. I looked through the big end rather than the small end. And the boy says, I didn't think to do that. And the old man says, well, I was I was equally amazed. It shrank everything down. Close things looked far. Big things looked small. And I realized in that moment, we all carry an emotional telescope in our hearts and minds. And whenever anything bad happens, we look through the end of the telescope, everybody looks through, and we blow it up. We make it look bigger and closer and scarier than it really is. We need to learn to turn that telescope around. And the boy says, that's amazing. I've never thought like that before. And the old man said, and look, once you get good enough at turning your telescope around, 
Once you get good enough at the wisdom of perspective, you can ultimately just put that telescope down and look at things as they truly are and know that you are big enough, you are powerful enough, you are capable enough to deal with anything life brings your way. Tom, let's talk about the second part of responding favorably to change then, the art of positive action. What does that look like? Well, you know, we want to get calm and that's important, but we don't want just that because that would be to be passive in the situation, right? So we want to take positive action. It's like self-control, the art of self-control allows for wise action rather than panicked action, for example. Um, the philosophers, again, give us three rules for this. And you can find this in different philosophers in different cultures. It's kind of universal wisdom that we too often forget about. The philosophers say, first of all, govern your attitudes. Um, often our attitudes are like our glasses through which we see the world. We, we rarely think about our, like I wear glasses, I rarely think about the glasses unless something's wrong. You know, the glasses are smudged, they're scratched. Then I'll think about the glasses. Our attitudes are much the same way. We view the world through our attitudes. And we often don't think much about our attitudes themselves until something is wrong, until we notice something is wrong. Well, sometimes that's almost too late. We need to regularly, that's why Socrates said, uh, the unexamined life is not worth living. He insisted that people examine their attitudes, emotions, beliefs, dispositions on a regular basis. Don't wait till something bad has happened. Don't wait till something is wrong. Govern your attitudes well throughout the normal course of your life. And so when something suddenly shocking comes up, you won't be predisposed to bad attitudes. You'll be predisposed to positive and healthy attitudes. I'm a realistic optimist. So when something happens that's challenging, I'm not one of the guys who runs around saying, well, this is it. This We're doomed now. Yeah, this is the end for us. I'm the guy saying, oh boy, this is going to be a challenge, but let's see how we can figure this out. Because I think that I've often said to people, I'm a short-term pessimist, long-term optimist, short-term, any crazy thing can happen. But long-term, I think that if we use our creative abilities, we can spin gold, we can make lemonade. So govern your attitudes, right? Uh, number two, look for opportunities. Seneca has a short sentence in uh, one of his essays or letters where he says, disaster is virtue's opportunity. That's quite a stark difference from the way most people view disaster or catastrophe. The opportunity, it's like Mr. Rogers, the TV uh, 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 child's television host. He said that some older person once taught him, whenever there's a catastrophe, whenever there's a disaster, look for the helpers. Look for the helpers because there are always going to be people who see the opportunity to do something good in even the worst of circumstances. So if we can... When everybody, when when disruptive change happens, everybody goes into the protective mode, right? Duck and cover. Everybody just, uh, just uh, okay, we'll, we'll hunker down until the storm passes. But the people who really succeed in life are the people who are up looking for the new opportunities that are being churned up by the change and, and making the most of those opportunities. So govern our attitudes, look for opportunities. Number three in the art of positive action, take the initiative. I had a bunch of people 15 years ago ask me, boy, you've dealt with people at the top of their game in sports, entertainment, uh, business, every domain of life. What do they all have in common? And I said, well, you know, it's funny that you ask that because when I think about it, they all have in common uh, a tendency to take action. They take initiative. They don't analyze things to death. They don't wait to see how other people are going to react. 
They figure out what needs to be done and they do it. We often learn by doing, Aristotle said. We can't figure it out before trying. We have to do. And, and I've loved the uh, new old saying, anything worth doing is worth doing badly at first to get started to figure out what will work. Yeah, that's, uh, that's great advice. And I have that slide in a leadership presentation I give. Actually, it's a child falling off of a bike and saying, you know, anything worth doing, uh, uh, worth doing is worth doing badly. So that, that resonates. Good, good. Now, I wonder about this aspect of having to take stock of your attitude when things are going well for you, which is, doesn't really come naturally. What are, some ways that, what are some ways that you can make that a practice to observe your attitude in, in, in times where things are kind of going smoothly for you? Have an accountability partner. One of the most interesting things about human history, well, the oldest human epic that is existent now is the Epic of Gilgamesh uh, from a set in 2700 BC, uh, written a few centuries after that. It's about a bad king, an abusive king, a terribly exploitive king who treats his people terribly. And by the end of the story, he's become a good king. And one of the things that happens is he meets someone that he sees as an equal for the first time ever. It ends up being the first buddy caper in all of human literature. And it points us to a really important thing, the power of partnership in human life, having an accountability partner. I have a guy that I worked out before the um, pandemic. We worked out in the gym pretty much every day for 10 years. And uh, he, kept, he held me accountable all the time. And uh, during the pandemic, we couldn't work out in the gym. Um, but even now, we work out occasionally still. And he'll send me an email almost every day. Have you done your exercises yet? You know, so I have to answer to him if I have it. And if I, if I say no, I have to say, yeah, but I'll do them in the next hour. Um, we make too little of the buddy system. If we want any habit change to happen in our lives to make us stronger, make us more powerful, make us more adaptive. We need an accountability partner. It's really hard to do something like that by yourself. Now, there have been all kinds of books recently, like Atomic Habits and Tiny Habits, books about how to get habits rooted in your life. And they're all really good. They've got a lot of good advice in them. Um, Duhigg's book that started it all, The Power of Habit. But accountability partners is one of the biggest things. So if we can find somebody, a peer, a friend, that we can you know, they've read Plato's Lemonade standing together and they say, you know, one thing we I never do is sort of examine my attitudes on a regular basis when things are going well. Do you do that? No, I don't, I don't do it either. Could we do that like once a week or once a month? Could that be one of the things we ask each other about? Okay. You know, don't go in the ocean. I live a mile from the ocean. People have been told for a long time, don't go in the ocean alone. Go with a partner, right? My workout partner is also a surfer. He usually surfs with other people. That's the whole thing. Use the buddy system. Use the accountability system. It can make all the difference in the world. When you don't feel like doing something, that's usually the time you really need to do it. And so if you have somebody else who can spark you or you need, or you say to yourself, oh, I have to tell him I, I haven't done it this week, um, that really helps. Let's talk about the third and final component to responding to change productively, which is the art of achievement. What does that one look like, Tom? I've been, I've been thinking about this one for a very long time. Um, we want to get self-control going to start with, with any disruptive change. And then we want to, we want to start out launching some positive action in response to the change. 
but we're not just doing stuff for the sake of doing stuff. We want our actions to be successful. And so what have the philosophers said about that? I wrote a book called True Success in 1994. was my first foray into what the philosophers said it takes for success in any challenge. And then I did a book a few years later. I came up with seven universal conditions for success. And I was speaking all over the world about the seven C's of success, I call them. Um, things like, you know, we, we need a clear conception of what we want. We need a strong confidence that we can attain our goal. We need um, a focused concentration on what it's going to take at each step along the way. We need a stubborn consistency in pursuing our vision. We need a, an emotional commitment to the importance of what we're doing, a good character to guide us and keep us on a proper path, and a, a capacity to enjoy the process along the way. So seven things, and in English, they all focus a, a word that, that starts with a, the letter C. So after speaking on the seven C's of success for about three or four years, I realized, you know what? There's a skill. There's an art connected with each of these things. There's an art of confidence building. There's an art of getting more consistent. And the cool thing about an art or a skill, the good news is wherever there's a skill, progress is possible. You can get better. It's like the first day you ever walk onto a golf course or a tennis court, you're not going to be a champion. You're going to look pretty bad. You're going to be pretty bad. But the more you go out and work on the, the, the component skills, uh, the better you're going to get. So I say to people, self-control, start with that. Positive action, look for ways to do that. But then you want that to be successful. So follow these seven things that I just kind of enumerated. You know, um, a clear conception, a strong confidence, all those things makes the difference. I've been amazed at how many people in context where you think they would be doing these things, how many people are pretty vague about their goals in a workplace situation, about what the company goals are, about what their real responsibilities are supposed to be? They know some pretty in pretty precise detail, but there's a level of vagueness that I never expected to see. And so to get a clear conception of what we want to see happen as a result of our efforts takes work. Um, confusion is okay because dealt with properly, it can lead to clarity. Uh, it makes us focus. And so each of these things, I encourage people, you know, the other two arts had just three rules each. And this has seven components. So it's a little more complex, but you can internalize these things to the point that you get really, really good. I, I, was, I was on a Zoom session earlier this morning with somebody uh, who's, who has a, an amazing philanthropic organization. And we were talking uh, involving athletes. And I was talking about the time I was on the plane from Charlotte to Pittsburgh. I was sitting next to a really big man. And he said, so why are you going to Pittsburgh today? We had just taken off from Charlotte. And I said, well, I got to speak to the top executives at the Bayer Corporation. I'm going to have a crowd of about 2,500 people tomorrow morning. And he said, oh, what are you going to speak to them about? I said, I'm going to talk about what the philosophers say it takes for success in any challenge. And he said, oh, what did the philosophers say? <laughs> well, um, I look at my watch, you know, we got an hour. And I said, you know, I pulled out of my, I always have in my pocket or my wallet, a laminated wallet card, seven seeds of success. That was the talk I was going to give that day. And so I pull out the card and I handed it to this guy. And he, he looked at the card, a clear conception of what we want, a strong confidence, focus, concentration. He goes down to all seven. And then he, he does this and he looks at me sitting next to him. He says, man, you nailed it with these seven things. You nailed it. I said, really? You think so? He said, you have explained to me for the first time in my life why I have been successful 
in my work. I said, really, could you tell me that about that? Well, when I was a teenager, I wanted to be a professional baseball player. And people say, you're not good enough. Get a job when you get out of high school, you know, get a regular job, give up this dream. He said, but I had a clear conception. I had a strong confidence. I had a focused concentration. And he said, I said, did it, did you get to play baseball after school? He said, I got on a minor league team and I grew up in Durham, North Carolina with the Durham Bulls. And we thought minor league was major league. Uh, my dad was the first radio broadcaster of the Durham Bulls baseball games. And his lawyer's son wrote a movie called Bull Durham about those days in Durham, North Carolina, Kevin Costner and Susan Sarandon. And I, I said, you got on a minor league team? He said, yeah. And the people back home said, don't even think about the majors, you know. He said, I was thinking about the majors. I said, did you get on a major league team? He said, I did. And then my uncle, he said, you'll think I'm making this up. I have an uncle who said, it's no shame to sit on the bench. You know, play your role, sit on the bench, be happy. Uh, you've made the major leagues. It's great. But don't even think about playing. He said, I was thinking about playing. Did you play? I played. Same uncle says, don't even think about home runs. <laughs> I said, were you thinking about home runs? So far, the story has had a certain pattern, you see. And he said, yeah, I was thinking about home runs. And I said, okay, did you hit any home runs? Yes, I did. And, you know, I don't know if you're this way, Jeff. I'm a guy. I'm sitting to a, next to a, a fellow who was a major league baseball player. He tells me the ideas I just showed him helped him be a success. He's just told me he hit some home runs. I got to ask a question. There's one question I got to ask. How many home runs did you hit? And yet he says to me something like 375. I kind of blanked out at that point. And there's one more question that really needs to be asked. What's your name? Willie Stargell, Hall of Fame. 12-foot statue of him outside the Pittsburgh Pirates Stadium, one of the most famous American baseball players in history. And he said, Tom, how did Plato and Aristotle know about American baseball, Major League Baseball? I said, Willie, they knew about human nature. They knew the things it takes to be successful in whatever we do. And so Willie passed away a few years ago, and I met his widow at a philanthropic event. And she said to me, I got to tell you, Tom, my husband was not easily impressed in this life with anything or anybody, but that plane ride the two of you had from Charlotte to Pittsburgh, he talked about until the week he died. He said, that man explained my success to me in a way nobody else ever has. Now, Jeff, I want to tell you something. If you're confronted with a change, you're confronted with a challenge, and you use the art of self-control, you use the art of positive action, don't you also want to use what people like Willie Stargell said made him a success? And boy, the word success sounds like a, a minor label compared to what he was able to accomplish in the, in the major leagues. But every star performer I've ever talked to has said basically the same thing. So if we do these seven things well, and they're on my website, TomFeeMorris.com, for any listeners who didn't, who tried to write these down, didn't catch them all. Um, do the right things. And you turn those lemons into the best lemonade you've ever tasted in your life. Well, yeah, and that is a great story, a great story. And what a serendipitous moment for you to have on an airplane. Uh, oh, my goodness. Now, and we're going to put the seven C's in the show notes as well, Tom, and make those available. And as I was going through the seven C's, I, it, you also suggested that this really does have to be a daily habit if you're going to leverage them. And does making it a daily habit, does, it, like, does that mean... At the end of every day, you're journaling and taking stock of these seven C's and saying, seeing where you, like where you did well and where you fell short, and then coming up with an action for tomorrow to shore up one of the weaknesses. Or like, what is a very practical way someone can make that a daily habit? 
Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, and and that's a great way to start. You don't necessarily have to stay that way because after you've done that for a while, it becomes your way of, of interpreting the world. So you are aware when one of these things is called into action and when you need to get on to another one. Most of us are doing four or five of those seven things pretty well most of the time, but we're neglecting one or two. It's like in college, if you took too many courses and you're, you're dealing with one or two or three and you're neglecting the others, hoping to get to those before the next exam. It's a balancing act, right? So, so one guy who in the real estate world, he was given um, a video, uh, no, an audio tape of me speaking. And I've always thought this was just the funniest thing because it was the worst case of the flu I ever had. I thought it was probably a talk I should cancel, but I went to give this talk anyway, and I could barely croak out words, and I held, had to hold the microphone to my lips practically. And these horrified people in front of me, the Urban Land Institute, they were wondering, is this guy going to be able to give a talk or not? I imagine they'd make it through the talk. It was recorded. That was a big surprise to me. And it was given to this young guy, 23 years old, uh, to listen to. He was working at a resort real estate development. And he claims to me he's listened to that tape over 400 times on the seven seas of success that whenever he was put in charge of a group at a, a real estate development, and he was often head of sales for various developments all over the country, all over the U.S., he would have a weekly meeting holding people accountable to the seven C's. Okay, what did we do last week on C1, C2, C3? He would go down the list and ask people, what did you do last week on this one? What do we need to do differently this week? How do we address this this week? You know, And so it was a weekly accountability session. I had the impression he did it on a daily basis, but then he had gotten to the point where he was helping people on a weekly basis uh, to use this as an ongoing mindset. So I carry the card with me. And whenever something in my life is not going well as well as it should, and that's often, right? There'll be something in your life that you just say, what is with this? Uh, why can't this get better? You have to say, okay, what am I not doing? Use it as a checklist, like airline pilots, surgeons, use it as a checklist. Okay, the emotional commitment part, I'm forgetting about that. You know, there'll always be something to help you diagnose the situation. And the more you get accustomed to doing that, the more it becomes part of your natural mindset, I think. Oh, uh, yeah. Good, good tip. Good tip. I, Tom, I want to talk about adventure and experimentation a little bit now. And I think yeah. just about all of us have had this experience where you go through some kind of discomfort and you emerge through the other side victorious or successful or whatever word you want to use. And, uh, and then you, you reach a bit of a plateau and our life can become more an exercise of like protecting and preserving what we have instead yeah. of going after something new. And you said something fascinating in, in, your, in uh, Plato's Lemonade in Stand, which is really uh, redefining what your comfort zone actually is. And I've never heard anybody say that before. And I wondered if you could talk about what that means and how to do it. Oh, yeah. See, this is one of the most important things I think I've discovered in the past couple of years is that um, we've heard for 10 years now, people say, you got to get out of your comfort zone. You got to get out of your comfort zone. Where the exciting things happen is always outside your comfort zone. And one day I was listening to a guy yell at me from a stage to get out of my comfort zone. And I realized he was under spotlight on a stage where he is to be found 100 times a year, smack dab in the middle of his own comfort zone. And he's telling me to get out of my comfort zone. Now, wait a minute. This is interesting. This is interesting. Championship athletes often tell me that in the middle of a game, they're in a flow 
where everything just seems so natural. They are in the middle of their comfort zone in the most challenging game imaginable. Um, so I'm saying, wait a minute, maybe sometimes this advice when you're stagnant, when you're stuck, maybe sometimes this advice, you got to get out of your comfort zone. Maybe sometimes it's good. Maybe sometimes it's very good. But maybe there's even deeper advice in the neighborhood that nobody's talking about. So the, the idea of a portable comfort zone occurred to me. I said, maybe the ultimate wisdom is learn to take your comfort zone with you wherever you go. It's an inner thing, not an outer thing. I, I learned a long time ago that championship athletes don't depend on their circumstances for their confidence. They bring their confidence to those circumstances. I think that's true of all the great inventors, of all the great explorers, of all the great people who've made breakthroughs in every field. They carry their comfort zone with them wherever they go. And so for them, it's not a matter of getting out of the comfort zone. For them, it's a matter of taking that comfort zone with them and being in that masterful flow that allows. So they're on an adventure that seems to other people scary because those other people require a stagnant comfort zone, a stable comfort zone, a comfort zone that's got foundations and deep pilings in one place. So if they go out that front door, they're outside the comfort zone. But the champions are people with the portable comfort zone. They take their comfort with them wherever they go. The first time I was on national television, and I've had the chance to be on national television a, a number of times. The first time I was on national television in the U.S., uh, one of the most popular shows in America, maybe it was the most popular, most watched show in the country at the time. Uh, and it was, I was scared to death um, the night before. I couldn't get to sleep. And the host of the show was a guy I had met in a social setting. And so I said to myself, this is his daily job. He is so comfortable with these millions of people on the other side of these cameras. And I'm scared to death. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to borrow some of his comfort. I'm going to pretend like this is my daily job, just like it's his daily job. I'm comfortable in the classroom at Notre Dame. Why can't I be comfortable in front of these cameras and this audience and these millions of people? He is. What's the difference between him and me? He's accustomed to it. It's his comfort zone. I'm going to borrow a piece of it tomorrow morning. I fell asleep right away and we had fun. The whole idea of a comfort zone, we've got to be a little more creative about how we use that powerful idea. And if we use it well, it not only urges us to get away from the known and go into the known, get out of your comfort zone, but it gives us this deeper layer of, oh, you know what? Take your comfort zone with you wherever you go as well, because that's what the masters always do. Top athletes, top musicians, you, you get Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones on the stage, they are living in a, a thick bubble of their comfort zone, you know, playing satisfaction or whatever, jumping Jack Flash. They're not outside their comfort zone. That's why they're able to be masterful at what they're doing. They're not trembling and worrying. And, and is this okay? Am I going to be okay? Is this going to be all right? Are we good? Is this song going to work tonight? Is the crowd going to like us? That's being outside your comfort zone right? Uh, they take it with them. And that to me has been a huge discovery as a philosopher. If we could spread that word more broadly, wouldn't it be a great thing? Yeah, it would. And I, and I think it's a concept I'm going to have to think a little bit more about, Tom. And is it is it the same or different as the mindset of just becoming comfortable with discomfort? Like, is that what the comfort zone yeah. should be? Like, I, I don't know if it's the same thing, though. Yeah, no, that's a transitional time. Uh, so, so get outside your comfort zone, step one. Get comfortable with being uncomfortable, step two. 
take your comfort with you, make it go with you wherever you go. Step three, um, it's a transitional thing because when I talk to Olympic athletes, when I talk to people who are top performing people in any field at all, they're always people who, are they uncomfortable during that game? I had uh, national championship football players come to my office at Notre Dame. They would win the national championship that year or the next year for some of them. And um, they would say, oh, I'm so scared about the test coming up. You know, uh, the first big philosophy test. I said, did you ever get scared before a game? Yeah, I get, yeah. Well, then what happens? I take my first hit and everything's, everything's great. I, I'm in the flow. I said, well, you know, I was tempted to say, well, you're going to take a pretty big hit on this exam tomorrow, given your work so far in the semester. But I decided to go in a different direction with that. I said, I said, you can, you know, you can flourish in this exam just like you flourish on the field. You can feel comfortable in this exam just like you feel comfortable on the field, but only because of preparation. You got to prepare. That's the only way it will ever work. So, so the 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 amateur tennis player is real uncomfortable on the court. The championship player is in the flow. You know, Chick Set Me High's famous book, The uh, Flow, that's what you get in the masterful comfort zone. There's a mediocre comfort zone. There's a comfort zone that's all about mediocrity. You want to get out of that. There's a different kind of comfort zone that's about mastery. You want to swathe yourself in that. So no matter how unexpected the situation is, you've got that going for you. Yeah, Tom, you mentioned your experience with high-performing athletes. And there's a term in Plato's Lemonade Stand I'd never heard before called precursive faith. And it's, re it's really this, sort of this concept that faith runs ahead of evidence, right? And so when you believe in the outcome ahead mm -hmm. of the effort, and I just, like, that's something everybody should have. How does a person start yeah. to develop precursive faith? Yeah, you, you just... Um... Again, it, it's habituation, right? Uh, I'm going to go into a situation. Uh, I, I'm going to go into a situation like the first time I ever spoke to 2,500 people in a room. Um, and I had to do this again the first time I ever spoke to 5,000 people in a room. And I had to do it again the first time I ever spoke to 10,000 people in a room that I'd been accustomed to speaking of audience, to audiences of hundreds of people or a couple thousand people. But then you go, you, you, I walked into a stadium where I was going to be the speaker the next day. And it was so big. It just scared me to death. And I had to do it. I had to play a trick on myself. I had to use something. I had to do something mental to get myself in the right frame of mind. And so rather than be literally, I was really, I felt a block of ice in my stomach thinking about how many people were going to be looking at me on stage the next day. And so I said to myself spontaneously, tomorrow for an hour, this is my house. I own this place for an hour tomorrow. It's my house. Everybody's a guest in my house. Everything that happens during that hour is up to me. I get to do good for every single person in every single chair in this Coliseum because they've come to my house. And so when I took emotional ownership of the space, and I learned that at Notre Dame, go to class, go to the, the new classroom a day before the, the class starts. Sit in different parts of the auditorium. What's it going to be like to sit here? What do I have to do to get this student? I do it with speeches. I show up an hour early, two hours early, a day early. I want to go into the room where I'm going to be speaking. I want to take emotional ownership of that space so that the next day I'm not just shoved out onto a stage I've never seen before. And good luck. Good luck. Hope you do well. You know, I'm going to be, it's going to be my house. And I'm going to be walking into a, a place that I've already grown to love. 
in anticipation, in imagination. We can do things like that that empower ourselves all the time. So we bring that precursive faith. We bring that confidence into the situation because it's not an unknown situation. I've known it in my imagination. I've known it in my heart. I've already loved what's going to happen in that room. I have appreciated it in advance. So let's go do it. You know, that's what I get excited about. Well, then how did it go? Always great. <laughs> Always amazing. And I thought, I worried about this. I was scared about this. Um, but I always learned how to deal with it. There's some mental technique we can use to get the precursive faith going, where we're not depending on the circumstances to give us our confidence. We're going to bring our confidence to the circumstances because that is the winning formula. Well, and it's funny, too, that sometimes, even when it doesn't go the way we envision it, it still lights us up and brings us joy because, again, we were out of our comfort zone, right? We were in our we were in our zone of genius, even if it didn't maybe come across the way uh, that that we thought it would. Uh, so, thanks for that, Tom. I want to get a little philosophical with a philosopher now. Yeah, sure. I am curious about your thoughts about how the world is structured right now and if it's making it more difficult or less difficult for us to deal with change productively. And I and I want to use an example. There, we, we share these stories with each other of disruption, as an example, just with the pace of innovation and technological change. And I, and I know right now in the face of all of this emerging artificial intelligence, there's some excitement that comes with that, but there's also a lot of fear. And the most popular story that we tell is the story of Blockbuster and Netflix and how Netflix came along and completely... Uh, upended an incumbent, or you know, Kodak was uh, was disrupted by the technology um, uh, of the digital camera, as an example. And I just wonder if sharing those stories makes it worse because we start to think that we're all susceptible to being disrupted. And I'm just curious about your thoughts on the state of society right now when it comes to change. Yeah, it's it is interesting that we share stories of the victors, the conquerors, the great success stories. And we find out to a lot of people's surprise that it's if we tell more of the story, it has a different effect. For example, I've told people one of the greatest startup business stories I've ever come across is Phil Knight's book, Shoe Dog, about the founding of Nike. Phil's story, it's almost like, you know, you're, you're out in the woods uh, with an R, uh, ATV and you, you're, 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 you run off a road, you crash, the ATV catches on fire, you're injured, a helicopter comes to pick you up, it crashes, you know, landing at the hospital, you get into the hospital, they operate on the wrong part of your body. I mean, Phil's story is filled with so much failure, challenge, disruption, failure. He's just about ready to solve a problem that looked like it was unsolvable. And then he gets a problem 10 times worse as a result. The whole book is full of, it's just like this disaster after disaster. You say anybody in their right mind would have just said, okay, the world doesn't want my shoe company. He would have given up, right? But he's a billionaire and it's Nike for crying out loud. So let's tell the whole story. Story about next Netflix disrupting Blockbuster. One of the founders of Netflix just wrote his book, which is almost as horrifying as Phil Knight's book, Shoe Dog, about what he they went through 
to try to become Netflix. Uh, now we hear about them disrupting Blockbuster and oh no, am I gonna be the next Blockbuster? Well, all along the way, it looked like they were gonna be the next Blockbuster. It looked like Phil Knight was never gonna found the company. We need to hear those parts of the story about how many obstacles, how many apparently unsolvable problems have had to be solved by people who do great things. And not to say ourselves, hey, uh, uh-oh, I'm about to be disrupted by, you know, a, a Phil Knight. No, no, no. I'm about to become a Phil Knight. I, I, I can be his apprentice. He can be my mentor, if only through his book. I can learn about Lemons to Lemonade. Man, it's the greatest Lemons to Lemonade account that I've ever come across. And I read a lot of business books. It's a remarkable shoe dog, a remarkable book. Um, that it, once you read that book, it's hard to feel sorry for yourself, no matter what magnitude of problem you face, because that was Phil's problem on Tuesday. You should have heard his problem on Wednesday. I mean, that's the way it always was for him. It would always get worse. And sometimes, and somehow he hung in there and he was transformative. Well, that's a terrific reframe, Tom. Thank you. And another question I have for you around the, so the state of the world right now, to get your, uh, to get your lens yeah. and your take on this, is we seem to be in this era of the individual. So individual influencers on social media, uh, everybody has a platform and a voice. It, you, know, you just have to set up a social media account and you can start sharing your views on the world all you want. And knowing that community is so vital to mental health and, and just the well-being of, our, of society in general, what are the implications for the rise of the individual and then the sense of community that we may or may not have right now? See, that's, it's funny because minutes before we got together on the podcast today, I was writing a chapter on community, <laughs> given stoic wisdom about community, because the stoic philosopher said, look, we're all born self-interested. We're born with a natural concern for our safety, our own health, our own flourishing. And so it's no surprise that a culture will develop eventually in human history like ours, where everything is about the rights of the individual, the opportunities of the individual, the flourishing of the individual, the, the potential payoffs to the individual. We become me, me, me. What's in it for me? How can I get more here? You know, it's it's kind of the consumer society um, on steroids that we just want more. We want more for what? Ourselves. And so we view other people as competitors for scarce resources. That's not a recipe for community. So the Stoics said basically, look, the things that we compete with other people for, wealth, power, fame, status. We gotta put those things in perspective. They're not as important as people think they are. They're no recipe for happiness whatsoever. You can think of plenty of people who have one of those things or two or three of those things to the max who are miserable, who commit suicide because they're so miserable. So we shouldn't think of life as a game about how to get as much external stuff as I possibly can for myself. We should think beyond that because that's where the happiness is to be found. And once we understand that, we understand we're not in competition with everybody else. Once we understand that, we it frees us up to partner with other people. Like we were saying a few minutes ago, one of the most powerful concepts in human life is, is the power of partnership. You read Aristotle's book called The Politics, and there's a lot of complicated stuff in there because it was his notes for his most advanced students. But you come away with, I, I've isolated a formula, not Aristotle's words, but my words for his ideas in that book. The highest human good comes out of this, people in partnership for a shared purpose. Always has been that way, always will be that way. Plural, people, not singular, the individual. 
always people together. Every great thing that's ever happened. Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs. Uh-huh. How about Steve Wozniak? How about the other people they were surrounded uh, with? It never happens with just one person. Uh, number two, multiple people in a certain kind of relationship, partnership, partnership. Number three, for a shared purpose. That's when things go really, really well. And there are pendulum swings in, in human history. We're in the middle of one of those pendulum swings. Now, we're not in the middle of it. We're in the process of it. But it's almost at one extreme of individualism, of divisiveness, us against them, me against you. The cool thing about the pendulum swing is it can only swing so far, and it becomes a wake-up call to everybody. Things get literally intolerable. And once people wake up, then the pendulum starts to swing back in the other direction. So I've often said to people, the worse things get, the more of an optimist I become. Because people can stand ridiculously bad circumstances until they get literally intolerable. And then it's a wake-up call for everybody. And people who've been just kind of, I don't know, I don't care. They, they wake up and they go into action and things change for the better. So I, I think, yeah, we're in a very individualistic world right now. I just did a book this summer uh, the address to this. Uh, it, it's called, see if I have a copy. I love to do this when I can pull a copy of a book. The Everyday Patriot, How to Be a Great American Now. It's a little tiny book. One of my favorite fan notes is from a young man in Romania who said, I read your book on how to be a great American. Now it makes me want to be a better Romanian. He said, I said, okay, that's what I was after. It's all about how we get past the divisiveness, past the individualism, past the me, 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 my rights, my opportunities, and forget you, you know, how we get past all that to the ancient philosophy that was behind the founding of America, where it's all about growing a garden of great things to share with others as well as yourself. It's about concentric circles of life, getting your own heart and mind strong so you can have a stronger family, getting your family strong so you can have a stronger neighborhood, getting your neighborhood strong so you can have a better, healthier, stronger town, a stronger nation for a stronger world in all the right ways of strength, a healthy view of strength, of contributing, of care at every level of human uh, life. And so individualism disappears real quickly because you realize, you know, you're just at the center of all these circles and you can't flourish unless all the circles are flourishing. You contribute in your little circle to the next one out and the next one out and the next one out. And those circles then reach back and support you in those innermost circles. Then everything is harmonious. We've gotten so far away from that. And in the little book, The Everyday Patriot, I'm calling people back to that. It's a short book. It's like 130 pages, but people are telling me, it's like life-changing wisdom because I'm drawing on people a lot smarter than me, all the greatest philosophers of the ages, and I'm just bringing their stuff forward to help us with exactly the challenges you're talking about. That could be a whole other conversation unto itself and a lot to unpack there. But Tom, do you think that we are headed for some kind of a global wake-up call, or how are you viewing that? Yeah, it, 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 I don't know if it was... It was some futurist, some famous futurist said a few years ago, the future is already here. It's just not yet widely distributed. And I think his insight was this. There are people I know who are already having that wake-up call, but not everybody. So it may be that things have to get a little worse before the wake-up call is more widely distributed but I see it starting to happen. And those people are already getting in gear, trying to turn things around, trying to return to rational discourse in politics, trying to return to caring communities rather than adversarial dealings with, with folks. And uh, as a philosopher, 
it's an exciting time to be alive. So I say to people, you look, we need wisdom now. When everything seems to be going good, like in the 90s, when I first became a public philosopher in the middle of the 90s, the economy was great. So many things were great. It was like wisdom was a nice add-on, some nice icing on the cake. And now people are realizing, no, it's a necessity. It's a necessity. We got to quit being foolish in our politics, in our economic choices, in our environmental policies. We got to quit being foolish while we still have the chance to make those choices. And I think the wake-up call is, is now spreading uh, quicker than I had realized it would. But, uh, hey, we need it to spread quickly. Tom, you really got me thinking a lot about uh, stoicism and philosophy. So uh, kudos to you. Of all of the of all of the quality of life improvements and enhancements, you know, the medical discoveries, all the technological change that, and advancements that we have seen uh, throughout the years, it seems like these philosophers and Stoics and you know, the tenets of Stoicism are, that are 2,500 years old, they seem to have life figured out back then. And those, those sort of tenets, if you want to call them that, still apply today and haven't really wavered. How do you explain that? Well, it's because human nature has never really changed. Our circumstances have changed dramatically, but we still have hopes and fears, you know, dreams and worries. Um, we are still uh, have to fight greed. We still have to fight uh, envy. We still have this range of emotions. The emotion, it's not like they had one set of emotions in in ancient Rome, and we have a really different set of emotions. Now, nope, nope, human nature is the same. That's what lets us read old books and get new ideas that we can use now. C.S. Lewis once said a couple things about books that I've always loved. He said, if a book is not worth reading twice, it wasn't worth reading once. A good book will always stand up to multiple readings. I read the Iliad and the Odyssey multiple times two years ago. I read the Odyssey four times in one year. I read the Iliad two times that same year. I finally understood them because of that level of engagement. Uh, he also said every age has its own prejudices and assumptions that are like the air we breathe. We're not even aware of them. The only way to get aware of them and to break anything that's holding us back is to read books written in other ages. He said, unfortunately, the books of the future aren't yet available, so we all need to be reading the books of the past because they'll give us different perspectives from those that float around us in the air, and we'll say, oh, I can use this tool, this technique that nobody around me is using. Nobody in my business is using this. I can bring this back from you know 2,000 uh, years ago, 2,500 years ago. I can bring this, and uh, I'm finding that I'm writing a book now based on uh, two of Mary Shelley's novels, Frankenstein, that was, I think, the greatest cautionary tale on success ever written. Victor Frankenstein was a brilliant man who set a clear goal and did everything the motivational speakers say to do to attain his goal, which he did. And he thereby let loose into the world a monster he couldn't control which is a metaphor for so much in life from the financial meltdown, the, the Great Recession, uh, to maybe even the pandemic, to American politics right now, to a lot of world situations right now. Uh, people launching into the world monsters they can't control. And you mentioned, you know, I mean, think about artificial general intelligence, bioengineering, uh, ecological degradation. We can't launch a whole lot more monsters into the world right now we need to be able to pull us back. So I based my new book on Mary Shelley's Cautionary Tales, and she wrote another book a few years later, 1826, I think it was published, called The Last Man. You won't believe what this is about. It's about a pandemic in the 21st century that kills everybody. 
And it's told by the last man. That's why it's the title. But oddly enough, it's not a book about epidemiology, virology. It's a book about the same cluster of characteristics she saw in Victor Frankenstein, which she saw in all the famous people she knew, self-focused grandiosity. So that they wanted to be great. They wanted to do something they'd never done before. They wanted to be famous. They wanted to be rich. And they, and they launched into the world monsters they couldn't control. So my book is called The Frankenstein Factor, subtitled Monster Success and Massive Failure. How, if we're not operating wisely, our very successes can become disasters. Mark Zuckerberg didn't sit around his dorm room and say, I want to bring down democracy all over the world, right? We, as, uh, so many other... Um, uh, some of the pyramid schemes in 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 modern finance, uh, the FTX implosion. Pe people didn't say, "I want to make billions of dollars disappear." Right? Sam Bankman-Fried didn't try to figure out a way to make billions of dollars disappear. Uh, Bernie Madoff didn't say, "I want to rob people of their retirement accounts." They wanted to be great. They wanted to be famous. They wanted to be better than they thought normal traditional ways of operating would allow them to be. So they launched into the world a monster they couldn't control. We need to get we need to get control on that. And and I say in the book, you know, this is a book about the person never to hire, never to promote, never to partner with, never to invest in, never to vote for, but especially never to be. Wow, that sounds like a timely book. And I'm so glad that you're motivated to keep writing those, Tom. Uh, and on that, and on that note, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a really enlightening conversation, and uh, just like your writing, uh, you uh, inspire and then you also equip with just practical tools and insights that anybody can start using. So I've really enjoyed this, uh, Tom. Where can people uh, where can people find you? Uh, my my website, Tom T O M V as in Victor, my middle name Tom V Morris uh, dot com. And there are pages for my books, there are pages for my novels, there's pages for the talks I give uh, uh, around the world. I invite people to come there. There are a lot of resources on the seven C's and on the arts of change. Uh, people can dig deep in that website. It's like, it's like going into the, the Amazon. There's always something you're going to discover there. So yeah, thank you so much, TomVMorris.com. And Jeff, it's because you're a great conversation partner. It's because you're a great philosopher in your own right that we were able to have a conversation like this. So I thank you for absorbing so many of those lessons in the book and for all the other great stuff that you do that puts you in a position to be an amazing guide for other people too. We need each other. It's all the buddy system. Yeah. Well, Tom, that's incredibly kind uh, and gracious of you. Thank you uh, for saying that. And it's uh, it's an absolute honor to be able to spend time with you and everybody else that joins us on Unleashed. And, and that includes anybody that tunes in and listens or, uh, or watches the show. So Thank you so much, and I can't wait to uh, to track down your other books that you've got coming, and and go back in time and start reading some of the other ones that I haven't yet discovered. So, Tom, thanks again for being here, and everybody else. Uh, hope that we've given you some tools and some ideas, and sort of lit you up in how you might respond to change more favorably and find joy in change and uncertainty going forward. Until next time, thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe to our YouTube channel or wherever your favorite podcasts are found. And if you're part of a leadership team and you know that your organization is capable of even better performance, please reach out to us at UnleashResults.com for a conversation and learn more about how we might help unleash the potential of your team and organization.